For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance to, in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly um, places, far above all rule and authority in the power of domination, and above every name that is named, not only in age, but but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head of, over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills in all. Ephesians 15 to uh, Ephesians 1, verse 15 to 23. Father, we thank you for all that you give us in Christ as we trust in him. Lord, may our city hear of our faith in you and also for our love for one another and for all, all Christians uh, everywhere. We want to be known for that. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts to, to know, to understand, and to see the hope you've given us, the inheritance that is yours, and to see your power. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that your name is is higher than every other name in the universe. We acknowledge that you are also the head of the church, in charge of the church, the chief shepherd of your church, which is your body. I ask, Lord, that you would empower me to speak your words for your glory and honor alone, not for mine. And, uh, yeah, just be with us, teach us, instruct us, encourage us together. In Christ we pray. Amen. Before I forget, uh, you saw Claire reading scripture so well today. I want to mention that Bill is one of our elders, and I believe Bill is still suffering at home. It, uh, oh, he's here. Oh my gosh, there he is. So I totally miss Bill. So I was going to say, we need to be praying for you, because I don't know that, that it was a diagnosis of broken ankle, or was it just ligaments, not just ligaments, but ligaments? It wasn't broken. It would have been better if it was broken, though. Wouldn't it have been? Like it would have healed quicker or something? I don't know. I'm not a doctor. So poor guy fell down the stairs, and so he's here. This is progress. This is good, and uh, we're pleased to see you. But please be praying for, for Bill and his recovery uh, as well. All right, let me get down to things here. And uh, we are now in our second installment in this new series on the book of Ephesians. The, uh, the title of the series is A Manifesto for the Church. And this book that God has given us today through the Apostle 
Paul, very helpful book because in this book of the Bible, we have God's manifesto, his published declaration of his intentions, his motives, his views, his ideas for the universal church at large and also our local expression of the church known as Mercy Hill Christian Church. More specifically today, though, in relation to the passage that Claire read for us, uh, we are looking at a sermon title, which is this, Enlightened to See uh, God's Plan. Enlightened to See God's Plan. I want to set this up and, and share with you a true story about someone who was uh, enabled to see, someone who was enabled to see. Her name is Marianne Franco. Uh, she is now age 70, and back in the day, she got into a car accident. Maybe you have experienced what it's like to get into a car accident, not fun. But in her case, in 1993, Marianne, uh, it was a very serious car accident, and she became totally, utterly uh, blind as a result of this car accident. And the reason was her spine was injured in the accident. So can you imagine, I mean, it's bad enough to get into a car accident and then get hurt in a car accident. Well, imagine going blind as a result of a car accident. Well, that was the case for her. Time goes on. 20 years later, two decades go by. Marianne, who is completely, utterly, totally blind, is walking across the living room in her home. Remember, she can't see anything. And so she's making her way around her living room. And as she's walking along, her foot catches a floor tile and she ends up falling backwards. And then she hits her head really hard on the floor tile. I'm sorry, not on the tile itself, but on the fireplace. Okay. And that's what she hit the back of her head upon. And sadly, um, that this happened. It's tragic. She's rushed to the hospital. She's an elderly person. And she is incapacitated. She is forced to wear this neck brace. And then after that, after a few days, she undergoes neck surgery. So there's major <coughs> damage going on. I mean, it's just sort of a knockout punch here between the car accident, going blind, and then this falling down situation. Well, as it turns out, though, Marianne, she is recovering after this four-hour surgery to her neck. Well, she wakes up from this neck surgery, and she, she realizes sort of nonchalantly that, I can see. Interesting. Just sort of, oh, I can see, you know. Okay. Without fully getting or realizing the full gravity of what's occurred to her, she then says, she kind of looks around, and again, she's just kind of waking up from surgery, and she, she says, hey, you lady in the purple over there, would you get me something for the neck pain? Okay. Well, her niece hears her remark about the purple lady wearing purple over there, and the niece sort of is like, what, what did you say? Like, what's going on here? Because she's like, you can see, like, something's happened here. And again, she's in this very drug state of mind. Marianne doesn't fully grasp the, the reality of what's happened, and, and so they, they give her more medication, and, you know, it's like, why give her more medication? They probably think she's hallucinating, I guess. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if it's possible for a blind person to hallucinate, probably. But anyhow... By the next morning, she wakes up after a night of sleep. She looks out the window and she sees, she realizes, I can see trees, I can see the houses out there. And she remarks at that moment in time, I am the happiest woman in the world. I can see again. I can see. And so how did this happen? How was Marianne enabled to see again after, you know, decades of blindness? Well, the doctors think that in that original car accident, um, because of the spinal injury that she 
had that a blood vessel got kinked, kind of like a garden hose gets kinked and the water doesn't run through. Well, that happened to a blood vessel, and so blood wasn't getting to that particular region in her brain that allowed her to see. And as a result of the next surgery, that blood vessel was unkinked like the garden hose and blood flow restored and her eyesight reestablished. It's amazing. She can see. And the, the funny thing is, with this woman, she, it turns out she's a Christian. So she gives God all the credit and all the glory for the return of her eyesight after 20 years being removed. Interestingly, in our passage today, the same kind of spiritual thing is, is going on with Paul and, and how he talks about the things of God. And he is praying that spiritual eyes are opened as a result of prayer to see God's plan, enlightened to see God's plan. He does not want us to be blind to the things of God. He does not want us to be blind for, for what God is planning and purposing for His church. He wants us to get it, to, to see it, to, to, to know it, to see with the spiritual eyes of our hearts, uh, to, to more fully grasp, grasp how big God's plan for the church really is. So let's get into it. Let's break this down and try to get our minds around this. Last week I mentioned that at the time Paul writes the book of Ephesians, um, he is likely under house arrest in the ancient city of Rome 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> now, why is this man in jail? Why is he being imprisoned there? And why are we studying a book of the, a, write, a piece of writing written by a prisoner? Okay, that sounds a little suspect, doesn't it? Let's, let's, let's study a, a, a prisoner's writings. Well, no, there's a reason for it, and it's not because he committed any crime. This is a man, rather, who is all about preaching the gospel and living out the gospel talking to people about Jesus, starting churches all across the Roman Empire, and as a result, they put him in jail because you don't mess with the religious systems that are already in place in the Roman Empire, and that is why he is under house arrest, okay? Um, ironically, though, it is in jail. Uh, that is precisely where God wants him to be. This is a man of action. Like, you couldn't... You, it's really hard to pin Paul down. He's a man of action, okay? And, but, and it was in jail, it was God's purpose to, to allow him to be under house arrest so that he would write 13 books of the New Testament. Like he, no one wrote more books of the New Testament than Paul. And that's how God used Paul to give us writings that we learn from and are edified and encouraged by today. So God's purpose, we don't see it in the moment, but we see it very often far after the fact. And that was the case with Paul. Anyhow, back to my notes. Sorry, guys, there... I get off notes, and then we have no idea where the slides are, and that's my fault. Um, he is in jail, and being in jail, you are dependent upon your fellow laborers, your, your fellow Christian family, to send out these letters, to carry them out and distribute them to the various churches that he started. And with that also, Paul was receiving reports uh, back from various churches. How were the churches that he started doing? Were they, were they hanging in there? Were they suffering? How were they doing financially? Um, were they being persecuted to a degree that was just extreme and getting all these reports? For example, we look at verses 15 and 16, if you have this passage in front of you of chapter 1. In those verses, Paul talks about that he's hearing things. He's hearing things about this cluster of churches in greater Ephesus. <clears throat> and he's not hearing bad things. Let us not assume he's hearing hot gossip about uh, what is all the bad stuff that's happening in these churches. No, Paul is catching 
win that there's a lot of good things happening in these churches. And the good things that he's hearing about these churches is that they are staying true to Jesus. They are not giving up on Jesus. They are keeping faith in Him. These churches and the Christians in them, they are not falling prey to the fixation that the culture at Ephesus had with the occult and with magic and with very superstitious things and the worship of the goddess Artemis and all the sexual immorality that was centered around worshiping Artemis, which was obviously a religion made by a man, okay? Uh, But anyhow, they're not getting sucked into that vortex. No, they are keeping faith in Christ. Further, Paul also tells these churches that he's hearing good gossip, if you will. He's hearing good things. He is hearing about how much they love each other, how dedicated they are to one another, meeting their needs. Um, They're showing love to one another and also showing love to the other Christians in the other churches that are in greater Ephesus. And, And that is a good thing to hear about. In considering this, I want you to think about if you're a parent, you got kids, or if you're a supervisor, maybe you're a boss, you supervise other employees in your workplace, or maybe you're a coach or have been a coach of players who you instruct in, in a sport or in a, in a martial art. Um, isn't it great when you hear other people talk to you or brag about your kids? Your kids are so awesome. Your employees that you oversee, they are incredible employees. They work hard, and they, they are just so, such, such good employees. Uh, your players, the players on your team that you coach, they are amazing players, and look how they are excelling, and look how disciplined they are. Isn't it great when you hear good reports about the people under your care and under your authority? The answer is yes. Yes, because you know they're, they're kind of a reflection of you and your leadership. And as a result of all these wonderful reports Paul's hearing uh, about these Christians in these Ephesian churches, what does he do? What's his response? His response is prayer. And he doesn't just pray a one-off prayer, just ding, and then that's it for for good. No, Paul is the kind of guy that prays not for a day or two or a week. This is a guy who is continually praying. He does not cease to pray, he says. He does not stop praying praying, and in his prayer, he is giving thanks to God for them, for these churches, for these Christians, not giving up on Jesus, loving one another deeply and truly. And that is what he is doing. He's thanking God for them. What can we learn from this? Uh, There is a sermon outline that you can follow along with, and number one on that outline is this in your notes. May our city, Surrey, Langley, Metro Vancouver, may our city hear good reports of our faith in Jesus and for our love for one another. May our city hear of our faith in Jesus and our love for one another. Uh, Bruce McDonald, you might know him. Uh, He doesn't mind his nickname, Gandalf. He kind of looks like Gandalf, kind of looks like Santa. He's not here today, but of course I'm blind. I can't see stuff, but Bruce is not here today, and it's it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. Uh, But anyhow, Bruce... Uh, is a good friend of mine. He does a lot for the church, by the way. But anyhow, Bruce recommended, he and I meet together very often for reasons of discipleship and mutual discipleship and uh, reading scripture and praying together. And he suggested, you know what, Kurt? Let's meet at my favorite restaurant, my favorite faux soup restaurant. The proper term, by the way, in Vietnamese, I understand is pho. 
not faux, but I'm just going to go with faux because that's what anglicized uh, ignorant Canadians call it. Uh, but anyhow, and he said, let's go eat some faux soup at this restaurant. And I said, why? Why? Why do we have to go there? I mean, it's kind of out of the way and it's annoying. He said, it is because, Kurt, they have the best faux soup, period. That's why. Something like that. And I, I said, okay, let's go. And lo and behold, I eat the soup. And I order, order what he had. And he orders the, it's, it's like peanut beef saute soup, something like that. And you better order the small because the small is massive. If you order the large, I mean, we're talking a, a gallon of soup. And anyhow, you don't want that. And that's what we get. The peanut, if you go there, peanut beef saute soup, triple three faux place, something like that in uh, Walnut Grove. And uh, so they bring me the soup. It doesn't look all that impressive. You know, you know what I'm talking about? And you're like, oh, okay. You take a sip of that soup and bam, it's, you realize your mind is blowing. Your mind, it's like explosions going off in your taste buds and your tongue is on fire in a good way. And I have never had such incredible soup in my life except for any and every soup that my wife has ever made. <laughs> okay? Second only. That's right. Their faux soup is delectable. It is filled with flavor. It's got that peanutty flavor, that spicy flavor, that meaty beef flavor. Like I said, best soup, period, except for any and every soup my wife has ever made. And as a result of this restaurant's amazing, mind-blowing soup, guess what I've become? A soup evangelist. Can you tell? <laughs> A soup evangelist. I don't know how many people I've referred to. Now I've referred all of you to Triple Three Faux, you know, in Walnut Grove. I've referred a lot of people to this, this restaurant because I know if they go, they're going to thank me. They're, they're going to love me, actually. They're, actually, their taste buds will love me and thank me forevermore. Anyhow, here's my point. When, when people, when places, when groups become known for good things, it becomes naturally contagious. We naturally spread the word even as outsiders. So I'm a, I'm a triple three outsider because I don't work there. I just eat there once in a while. Okay, even outsiders naturally spread the word about that person, about that place, about that group of people. And may Mercy Hill Church, like the Ephesian churches, they became famous, they became known in that region. And, and to Paul, through word of mouth, as a group of people who stay true to Jesus no matter what, they stay faithful to Jesus, they stay faithful to the ways of Jesus, they refuse to cave in to cultural pressures. They refuse to water down the, their faith in Jesus. They refuse to try to write their own Bible. Now, there's a lot of people who would never say, or who would, who would not, not say, oh, I'm writing my own Bible. But they're actually, they are writing their own Bible or their own version of the Bible when they start going against what the Bible says. And say, no, the Bible doesn't say that. They're writing their own Bible. That's what's going on. You don't want to do that. And so anyhow, Paul he commends these Ephesian churches for their faith in Jesus. And the reason he does is because they were experiencing in that Ephesian culture serious pressure to adopt the magic fixation and the occult fixation and the sexual immorality fixation of this false god Artemis and all that was wrapped up in the worship of Artemis. And this was a very dark and a very strong and a very tempting 
cultural belief system that contradicted and went against, in every way, the ways of Jesus, that went against faithfully following Jesus and believing the Bible. And so he's saying, way to go, guys. You're not caving. You're not caving. They refuse to cave. No, they, they are rock solid, man. They refuse to adopt what the culture wrongly believes about sexuality, about gender, about spirituality, about marriage, and about family life. No, no, no. They are staying true, man. They are following Jesus no matter what. Even if they lose friends, they're following Jesus. You know, once you cave in, once you start watering things down, writing your own Bible indirectly, you start turning away from Jesus, and that's not a direction you want to go. It doesn't end well. You don't, want to, you don't want to turn away from Christ. One other thing here. May we also become known in our city, in our region, in Metro Vancouver. May we become known for being a church family. Man, we love each other. And not just this much. We truly, deeply love each other. This is a place of love. Let us become known for that. Over the years, many of you know, I have slagged on you. I've been hard on Mercy Hill Church. And I've complained about you, to you. It's probably the best way to do it instead of behind your back. Um, and, and bluntly said, you know, we are not a loving church. You know, we're not. We're, we're not loving each other like the Ephesian churches did. But as time goes on, we're about 13, are we now 14 years old? 14 years old. Oh, my gosh. I don't know why I'm looking at Ian. I think he's been here for 14 years. That's why. And he's hanging in there, man. He's, he's dying, but he's hanging in there. I'm just teasing. Um, but you know, I've discovered in more recent years that people are now saying and, and finding out, and they're feeling the love here. Like newcomers are saying, hey, I'm being war warmly welcomed. But also the newcomers are seeing that we actually care for each other. They're seeing that. That's good. So let me commend you. Like Paul was commending the Ephesian churches, I want to commend you, Mercy Hill, for showing the love to one another. But let us do this all the more, even more. Let us do this all the more in order to display the love of Christ that we've received and then funnel that love to each other, to sacrifice for each other like Christ sacrificed his life for us. And I'm telling you, the world in which we live, the culture in which we live is lonely. They are relationship-starved. They are love-starved. And so here we can offer the love of Christ to our lonely, unloved world. The light of Christ shines all the more brightly. His love shines all the more brightly in a very unloving world in which we live. That's all I got to say, say about that. Let's move on. Let us now look uh, now at verses 17 to 23. It's really the, the rest of the passage. And here we see the Apostle Paul saying that he is continue, continually praying. Remember that? He is continually praying for this cluster of Ephesian churches. And, and the question, though, is what is Paul praying uh, about on their behalf continually? He's praying for them day in, day out. What is he praying on their behalf about? Well, he is asking to God the Father to give them spiritual wisdom. God, give them spiritual wisdom to reveal God's knowledge to them. Open the eyes of their hearts to see, to see and to understand what? What does he want them to see and to understand? With the eyes of their hearts. Did you know your heart and not your physical heart? We are talking about your spiritual heart, and it is really it serves as the headquarters for who you are. It's where all your, your will is and your decisions and your emotions 
your affections, it's all wrapped up in, in the biblical understanding of the spiritual heart is the headquarters for who you are. And that heart has eyes. It has eyes. And those eyes, Paul is asking the Lord to open. Okay? And he is asking them to open his eyes, to open the, the heart, eyes of their hearts, to see and to understand four specific things. These are in your notes. He wants them to see four specific things. The first thing that he wants them to see is their hope. Second, that they will see God's inheritance. Explain that later. Third thing that he wants them to see, that they will see God's power. And then fourth, that they will see Jesus' authority over his church. Okay? One, two, three, four. There it is. There, there's your outline. And there, that leads us to point number two in your notes. Let us continually ask our glorious Father to open the eyes of our hearts with spiritual wisdom to understand dot, 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 those four things, okay? I want to talk about grade school. I used to be younger when I was younger, and I know it was a bad joke. Back in grade 10 in high school, okay? Yes, I went to high school, and I made it, made it through it somehow. But I was in grade 10 many moons ago, and I was struggling in grade 10 with mathematics, Math is not my strong suit. I believe there's an American Democratic candidate. His name is Andrew Yang. And his primary political catchphrase is math. In fact, they've written math. And have you seen this math catchphrase? They got hats and stuff that say math. And that is a catchphrase that is not in any way attractive to me. It is not at all attractive. It, it's like, it just repels me. Just, oh, math. You know, because like I say, I am not good with math, and I struggle with it in high school. And so coming into high school, grade 10, and I was required to, to take math and take sort of the, the higher level math, you know, it was kind of a fear-filled issue for myself. I didn't want to do that. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for the grade 10 math teacher. Can't remember what his name was, but I happened to learn grade 10 math from this, this guy all I remember about him, he's had a, he had a big mustache, he was a skinny guy, and he talked loudly, and he's very passionate about math. I mean, who's passionate about math? Maybe you are, that's okay, by the way. But he was very passionate about math, okay? And the thing about this teacher, he could sell meat to a vegetarian, okay? He could get them to eat bacon. He was just very convincing. He could sell anything. Anyhow, he taught mathematics to us in very complicated algebra-based mathematics in such a way that it seemed like every single person in that class, including me, we got it. It clicked. It made sense. We understood it. In fact, somehow this grade 10 math teacher, who kind of looked like that guy on the screen, somehow made math fun. Sounds impossible, doesn't it? But somehow he made it happen. He was the key. He was the key to make it click in our minds. And you see, every other math teacher in that school, I think every other parent of, of any high school students, man, they were struggling to, to help their kids grasp and understand grade 10 math and algebra. You know, it's a big jump from grade 9 to grade 10 math, okay? But this mustachioed, skinny, uh, high-voiced teacher, which is okay, by the way, he made math click for us. He made it click for me. No one else could do that. No one else. No one else. As a result, I graduated from high school, and I got my, what it was called in Alberta, the matric. I don't know if that, is it a BC, they call it a matric? It might be a, a, an Alberta thing. Anyhow, miracles happen. 
Miracles happen. I, I pass math. And so it is. Here's my point. God the Holy Spirit works in a similar clicking kind of way. You get it? Only He can open the eyes of your heart, of my heart, of our hearts. Only He can. Only He can give us the needed spiritual discernment and the wisdom that we need. Only He can cause us to, to know the deeper things of God in Christ. Take the Holy Spirit out. We got nothing, man. So He is the key for understanding and knowing God and the big things of God. And this is why, like Paul, you know what we need to be doing? We need to be doing the same and praying the same kinds of prayers, continually praying for God's help to understand the things of God because they are unnatural. They are not natural to the flesh, right? This is a spiritual thing that God makes happen in us. And this is why we must be praying. I don't know what you're doing on Sunday mornings. You're probably just trying to survive and open your eyes, the physical eyes, and just get some coffee in your system and show up. I get it. But this is why we need to be praying in advance of this church service. We need to be praying, God, help me to stay awake during the, the worship service and the sermon, uh, and then help me to, to, to be open to what you're saying to me. To have the open the eyes of my spiritual heart to receive what, what God is speaking to His people about. So we need to be praying before we show up here for worship on Sunday morning. All right? We need to, to, that He would open up our spiritual hearts to understand the things of God that will be taught here. Parents, there's a few parents in the room. This is why we must be continually praying for our children. Holy Spirit, open up the eyes of my child's heart to the gospel, begging the Lord, please help my son, please help my daughter uh, to see how much you love them, to understand the gospel, to, to, to know and to believe that you love them to such a degree that you laid down your life, Lord Jesus, on the cross to pay the death penalty for their sins. Help them to see that that they would be inspired by that, that they would get it and grasp it, that they'd be cut to the heart and convicted of their sins and realize that they need to believe and trust in Jesus for their salvation and for their transformation. Lord, Holy Spirit, open their eyes. Something we must be doing continually. Are you praying? I'm not trying to lay a guilt bomb, but are you praying for your kids in this way? Open their hearts, the eyes of their hearts, to see the gospel. You know, it makes perfect and, and logical sense that we need the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, to, to help us understand, help us see the very spiritual things of God. The Holy Spirit helps us see spiritual things. Makes sense, right? And so, Lord, let me say this as a prayer. Lord, in this moment, help us to see the bigness and the wonder of your cosmic plan for the universe that all things are to be united in Christ. That's all about you, Jesus. Help us to see that. Let's move on. Previously, I talked about how Paul, you know, he's begging God, open the eyes of these Christians in these Ephesian churches to see and to understand four key things. And I rattled them off fairly quickly. So now we're going to look at the four key things that he is begging God that they would see with their spiritual eyes, okay, the eyes of their heart. And let's unpack these. The first thing, little lay in your notes, is he wants them to see the hope that he's called us to. He wants them to see the hope that he's called us to, that it would be new heavens, New earth with God and his people forevermore. Right now I'm reading another great book by 
outside of the Holy Spirit, my favorite author, uh, Paul David Tripp, and it's a book called Forever. I highly recommend it, although I haven't finished it yet, so you know, take the recommendation loosely. It's a great book, and this last week I was reading a chapter on hope, as it, just in God's providence. And in this chapter, Tripp tells a, a true story about a guy, and this guy's name is John. And this is a guy that Tripp was counseling. He's a counselor. In short, John was single for a lot of years of his adult life. And actually, frankly, he was quite, quite miserable, very, very unhappy, uh, you know, just alone and, and feeling not good about his life, even as a Christian, until he met somebody. He met somebody, and her name was Melinda, and she was young, she was beautiful, and just had a very engaging personality. And so John, this, this, this happens, okay? You know, you're attracted to somebody. He's, he's enraptured with Melinda. And again, not just because she's beautiful and has this engaging, attractive personality, but he really likes her because Melinda loves mountain biking, okay? And guess what is John's favorite hobby to do? Mountain biking. I mean, that's, that's a good combination. So they're all about mountain biking, all about the outdoors, all about fitness. Well, it's not long before John and Melinda, they're married. And John is just like, I can't believe how great my life is right now. I mean, does it get any better than this? This is awesome. He can't believe how happy he is, how good life is. And he's feeling this way for two or three years until it happens. Melinda's health hits the tank. It takes a significant downturn after these three years of fun, mountain biking, blissful type marriage. And sadly, she is diagnosed with this debilitating autoimmune disease. And, and it gets worse with time. It becomes, it's an uncurable, incurable, lifelong issue. And severely limits what she's able to do physically. So basically, anything outdoors, anything sports-related, anything mountain biking-related, done. It's gone. Never again. It's bad. Now, as you can imagine, how does John respond to this? Now, no one would respond well. Okay, being Melinda's spouse. But for John, it, it's really bad. He does not respond well at all. In fact, his whole world of hope and any sort of positivity, it just crumbles, just completely gone. I mean, he's just in the doldrums. And, and why, is this, <coughs> why is this happening to John? Well, he placed all his hopes, you see, all his dreams, all his desire for purpose in life, it was all wrapped up in one person, and that person's name was Melinda. But Melinda, nor any other human being, you or I, none of us can carry those kinds of divine expectations to be someone's meaning, to be someone's purpose for existence, to be someone's ultimate joy. None of us can carry that heavy burden. None of us. That's a divine expectation. She could not be John's personal Messiah or personal Savior. She cannot be the one to be the one who would primarily give him meaning and purpose and ultimate hope in life. She couldn't carry that. None of us can carry that. So what happens to John? Well, he finally has the wisdom. He's a Christian, remember. He reaches out to Paul because he needs a counselor. He, I'm so far down right now, I can't, I'm no good to anybody. So he reaches out to Paul David Tripp and over a period of months undergoes some counseling. And after a period of months, here is a quote straight from the book, about these counseling sessions and his time with John. Here's what he says. John now approached, so his whole attitude and his, his mindset has changed 
John now approached Melinda and his marriage with a hopeful heart. He had come to know that hope is not to be found in a situation, a location, or relationship, but in a person named Jesus. So John, he was freed from the bitterness and the paralysis of his hopelessness. John hadn't been running to God for help because he thought God had failed him. But John began to read his Bible more and more, started chipping away, started to pray more. And as he did, his hope is growing again. You know, We minimize the power of just basic discipline of reading the Bible for yourself most every day and praying most every day, if not every day. You know, we, un- we underestimate the power of those basic disciplines. And that, it, it, you need to, I need to, we need this to feed our souls and to get our minds off of our own stuff and our minds and our hearts on Jesus. But back to John. Putting myself in John's shoes, would I have reacted in the same way, getting, gotten bitter against God, disappointed, all the rest? Yes, yes, of course. And of course, I've experienced this in my own life when my, my life has not gone the way that I, I thought I deserved, Okay. And that's why I love this story, because it points out things in me, my tendency to place my hope in things, to place my hope in people, that people and situations, those hard things, they're by design there to actually point me to the ultimate hope that I have in Christ alone. And so the key is asking, Lord, keep my eyes on things above and not on things below. Keep my eyes on things above and not on things below. I'm going to share a quote from the NIV Zondervan Study Bible. It explains how we must view our hope in Christ. You ready for this? This is based on this verse in this passage. It says, Hope, the certain expectation for a glorious future with a cosmos that is united under Christ. This is not a hopeful wish, but a confident expectation. It's going to happen. Confident expectation of what is to come since it is ultimately grounded on God's faithfulness. You can bank on God's promises. And so let me pray a prayer. Lord, help us to see our hope in Christ. That it needs to be a certain expectation for a glorious future. Not just a hopeful wish, but a confident expectation of what is to come because you, Lord Jesus, you can be trusted to deliver the hope to us and this hope to us. Let's move on to the second thing. Remember, there's four things that Paul wants us to see here that the eyes of our hearts will be open to. Hope is number one. The second thing we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to see and understand is little b, that we are God's rich and glorious inheritance. That we are God's rich and glorious inheritance. Sounds weird, doesn't it? But let me explain this. When I first looked at this passage, I assumed when Paul was talking about hope, and then he later mentions shortly after this glorious inheritance, I thought it was the same thing. I thought he was referring to our glorious inheritance that we have in Christ when we trust in him. New heavens, new earth, heaven, eternal eternal life. This is a good thing. I, I assume this was what Paul was referring to. But upon reflection and looking at other Bible scholars and what they were saying about this, uh, it seems that Paul is not talking about our heavenly inheritance, but rather God's inheritance. God's inheritance. Yeah, yeah. Look at how the ESV Study Bible explains this. It says, the inheritance here is not the Christian's inheritance, but his being God's. This indicates how precious his people are to God. 
They, they are, so to speak, what he looks forward to enjoying forever. Isn't that amazing? And just before you assume that I'm wrong here, <laughs> I checked the original Greek, and it seems that this is indeed the case. Okay? This is... Paul seems to have in mind God's inheritance. We are his inheritance. If you're anything like me, uh, you struggle with viewing yourself in positive ways. You struggle with that? Viewing yourself in positive ways? Yeah. I got issues. And uh, so I struggle with understanding and accepting how much God loves me. I struggle with understanding how God actually cherishes me. I struggle with how much God enjoys me. I do. How much God is looking forward to being with, with me forever, you know, in the new heavens and the new earth. I struggle with that. But I shouldn't. I shouldn't. You shouldn't. That's how much you mean to God. That's how much I mean to God. And, of course, it makes sense when you look at what God has done for us. He sent his own son, Jesus. Okay? The one he loves most. He sent his own son, Jesus, to earth on a rescue mission to save us from our sins so that we could become his kids and become his inheritance. I mean, no one lays down or sends their own kid to die for other people unless they really love those people for whom the, the child is, is sent to die for. You see what I'm saying? So I shouldn't struggle to see that I, God is actually looking forward to being with me and being with you. And being with us all. We shouldn't struggle with that. Because that's just how much he loves us. And values us. And cherishes us. Isn't that cool? Let's move on to the third thing that God, Paul is praying that we would see with our spiritual eyes. And that is in your notes, little c, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. The immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. Uh, the way Paul talks about the power of God in verses 19 and 20, pretty captivating, pretty awe-inspiring. If you look at them, God's power for us is immeasurable. So you can't, there's no yardstick. You can't measure it in miles. It far exceeds miles and kilometers or light years. It's because it's immeasurable. That's how much power is there for us to save us and to change us. You can't measure his power. It is great. It is great, Paul says. In fact, Paul says that the very same power that God utilized to raise Jesus up from the dead and then uh, allow Jesus to ascend to the Father's right hand in heaven, well, it's that same resurrection power that God is working in our lives today for those who believe in Jesus. And this power comes to us through the Holy Spirit. And again, if you're anything like me, like I got, I got issues, man. I struggle with doubt sometimes. And maybe you struggle with, with believing that, that that kind of resurrection power is, is in here somewhere by the Holy Spirit. We struggle, I struggle with believing God's power to that extent is alive and well in me, but it's true, it's real, it's real. You can bank on this stuff. It's there. He's there. And the power to raise someone from, up from death and then take that raised up person into the heaven, transport him there, and, and change him into this new resurrection with his new res, res, raised body. Um, that's a lot of power. But that's the kind of resurrection power that is at work within us. And we need to believe that. 
And so let me pray again. Lord, help me, help us to believe. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, to know and to understand that it's this same resurrection power is available, accessible, alive in us today as a church family. So Lord, work in us with this resurrection power that we will be transformed, that we will be empowered to share the message and the gospel of Jesus to the lost people in our circle of relationships. That's the kind of power we're talking about. Let us finish up, okay? Let us finish up and look at the fourth thing that Paul prays that we would understand and see with the eyes of our heart, and that is, in your notes, little d, the supreme authority that's been given Jesus over all things, including his body, the church. The supreme authority that's been given Jesus over all things, including his body, the church. This is the final thing, as I, I'm, I'm about to land the plane here, so bear with me. This is the final thing that Paul prays for the Ephesian church to understand that Jesus is not just above. So Paul says that he is far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. Are you getting a sense of how great and authoritative Jesus is? That's pretty far up. And then he wants them to see that above every name is whose name? The name of Jesus. That's, that's a lot of names. Seven, almost eight billion people in the world today. Whose name's at the top of the list? Jesus. For all time. That's a very high amount of authority given. Furthermore, Paul wants the church to see that, that all things have been put under the feet of Jesus, that Jesus has been given total headship over the church, his body. And in short, uh, this is why the Bible describes Jesus as being the king of kings and the Lord of, of lords. God the Father has given Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth. And, and I want to ask you, do you see Jesus in this supreme way. This is who he is. Or honestly, you know, sometimes we get distracted and we start thinking about other leaders. You know, and we're not, as obs we're not obsessed with the leadership of Jesus and how authoritative he is as we should be. And we get attracted to this leader or this person of influence over here, this celebrity over here. No, no, no. The really impressive one is Jesus. Do you see him that way? So let us pray. Let us beg the Holy Spirit to help us to see Jesus as he really is. And he is authoritative. He is over and above all things. He is the head of the church, chief shepherd. And his name is above every name. And so let us worship him for the authoritative person that he is, the great person that he is. All right, let's bring it in. Let's pray. Lord, we're just scratching the surface of understanding how great you are, how high up you are, how all things are to be united in you, that you are the, the key person in human history. Help us to see you that way. Lord, forgive me for getting distracted. Forgive me for giving too much attention to things or people or sports or whatever and not being fixated on you and how great you are, and how good you are, how loving you are. Uh, Lord, I thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord Jesus, in and through and by the gospel. 
Lord, help us to understand just the greatness of your love for us. Forgive me for not grasping that we could be your inheritance, that you would want to be with us in the end, that you're looking forward to being with us when we can see you and, and, and enjoy the new heavens, new earth, and being with you and your people forever. Forgive me for, for not seeing that. Help us to see that, to see that love that you have for us. Lord, we thank you for laying down your life for us on the cross. We come to the table today remembering and celebrating all that you've done to save and to change us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. So now we're going to respond to God's word in three ways. We're going to worship, we're going to take up an offering, and we're going to take part in communion. Communion, uh, Lord's Supper, is our weekly memorial meal where, where we remember Jesus, we remember his great love for us, and we honor and celebrate him and worship him as we take this memorial meal. And uh, we examine ourselves as well. We take our sins to the cross to receive the, the needed grace and mercy that we need to cover our sins. And uh, so take a moment to examine yourself. But to get our minds and hearts focused on what the meaning of the Lord's Supper is, I want to read Matthew 26, 26 to 29. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So with that, I'll turn it over to the servers and to Danny and the worship team as we take this memorial meal together.